Hey, I want to talk to you today about spiritual companionship. I really want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament. It's the book of Ruth. This is the second message in a series on tools for resilience. These are things that God gives us to help us get back up when life knocks us down. There is a Bible app for this, or you can turn to Ruth 1, which in a Bible that is in your chair in a rack near you, um, you would find out on page 258. Ruth chapter 1 is where we're going to be. For Christmas, no, I think it was for my birthday. I can't remember which it was. My wife got me this book by a man named Scott Sauls. I'd never heard of him before. He's a pastor. I think he's in the Midwest. And um, it's called From Weakness to Strength. Um, and as a pastor, he's speaking to pastors. It might be one of the best books I've read for those who are in pastoral ministry. In that, he has a great statement that I want to read to you. It's maybe a paragraph long, so you'll have to kind of bear with me as I read it. Um, but in order to understand his statement, you have to know who a person named Marcus person is. Marcus Person. Anyone know who he is? Yeah, I didn't either. Okay. Anybody, uh, how about this? Anybody know what Minecraft is? Who knows what Minecraft is? Oh, wow. A lot of you. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, Minecraft is a video game. And I think you can play it on a phone or a PC or I don't know. It's, it's one of those, you can play it almost anywhere. I've never played it. I've seen it and thought, why would I want to do that? But it's, it's very profitable and it's uh, um, highly, uh, highly enjoyed by many, many people. Um, Marcus Person developed that. Okay, so that's what you have to know. All right. Scott Saul writes this. A recent edition of Business Insider reports that Marcus Person, the 36-year-old founder and president of Minecraft, sold the company for a whopping $2.5 billion dollars. Following the sale, he purchased a $70 million mansion and spent his days, quote, living the dream with lavish parties, high-end vacations, and world travel, and making friends with famous celebrities. At the peak of his success, when those looking at his life from the outside might assume he was one of the happiest, most fulfilled people in the world, Person sent out two reflections on Twitter that told a very different story. The first was this. The problem with getting everything is that you run out of reasons to keep trying. Okay, that's good. But the second one's more pointed. Listen to this. Hanging out with a bunch of friends, partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I have never felt more isolated. Huh. Isolation. Loneliness. Forced seclusion. Going to stand in the corner aloneness. Those are words that do not describe anything that we generally value. But they can be words that could describe you or me from time to time. Do you ever feel any of those words? If you want to measure the degree to which you are isolated, you might ask yourself a question like this, who do you have that you can confide in? And if you're an English grammar Nazi, you know that's poor sentence construction. Why would you use a preposition to end a sentence with, right? Because it sounds good. Hear it again. Who do you have that you can confide in? I mean, if you're having some kind of serious problem, maybe it's a medical problem, or maybe it's a problem with your children, or maybe it's a financial problem, or maybe it's a problem with your marriage, or maybe it's an emotional problem, or maybe it's a problem with your parents, or maybe it's a vocational problem, or maybe it's a problem with addiction. Who do you have that you can trust and you can go to and bear your soul to? Sociologists tell us you don't have as many people as you used to. 
In fact, a study that was done, conducted by Duke University, says that in a period of about two decades, the number of people that we have as individuals whom we, in whom we can confide has been reduced by a third. So you're thinking, okay, well then if I had nine, now I have six. It's not that good. It used to be. Back in 1985, they had three. A couple decades later, it was down to two. My guess is it's gone down from there. (laughs) And there are a lot of conjectures as to why does this happen. We love to blame social media. We love to blame. But the fact remains that people feel like they have fewer close friends today than people in the past felt like they have close friends. And that's a bad thing. It's a bad thing for a number of reasons. One is because of the passage in Ecclesiastes, two are better than one, so three are better than two. And if you fall down, who do you have to help you up? Who can pick you up? Who can help you? Additionally, physicians tell us that it is unhealthy not to have close friends. You will not be as resilient. For example, the, the researchers did a test on people who had a serious illness that happened to be heart disease. And they found out if your doctor says to you, you have heart disease, if you don't have close friends, then your chances of survival drop by almost 50% in the next five years. Wow. Wow. So today I want to talk to you about the importance of friendship, but I'm not just talking about the importance of ordinary friendship. I'm not just saying, go get a buddy that you can go out and have dinner with. Go get a buddy that you can go fishing with. You might have dinner. You might fish. But I want to instead talk to you very specifically about spiritual friends, spiritual companionship, and I want you to see that it is actually a tool that God has graciously given you to make you more resilient, that you will be able to bounce back from the things in your life better if you have spiritual companionship. Now, we're going to look at the first chapter of the book of Ruth, and I'm going to kind of talk you through it as we go. Ruth was a a woman in the Old Testament. She had a mother-in-law whose name was Naomi. They're really the two key figures here in the opening part of the text. So follow along with me in Ruth chapter 1 as we read together. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So it begins with a sense of foreboding. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and sons, went to live while Uh, for a while in a country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem, Judah. They went to Moab to live there. Okay, now think about it. Naomi and her husband and her two sons have to leave their country and go to a foreign country because of a problem in their country. What is that? What do we call people like that? They're refugees. Okay, So here they are, these refugees have left their land to go to this land called Moab, and that's a bad thing, but things are actually going to get worse. Look at the very next verse, verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. So now she's a single mom, and she's a widow on top of that, living not in a community where people know her, not where she can go over to see her mom or her aunt or her, her dad or her uncle or her cousins, but she's living in this foreign land as a widow with these two sons. Okay, things get a little better for a little while. Look at verse four. Regarding her sons, it says, they married Moabite women, one of them, Orpah, and the other, Ruth. 
After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malan and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay, now she's not just a widow. She's childless. And she's still miles away from her homeland. And so she decides to go back. Verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, that is back home, she and her daughters-in-laws prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on a road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you would find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will not go, I'm sorry, wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why should you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight, and then gave birth to two sons, would you wait for them as they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Oh, I really hate that phrase that she uses there. Naomi has come to believe something about God that isn't true, that for no good reason at all, he is treating her bad that he is against her, that he is out to make her life miserable. In fact, she believes he's already done so. Look at verse 14. The daughters-in-laws have a decision to make, daughters-in-law. As they wept aloud, then, at this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go with her, go back with her. And then we come to verse 16. Now, verse 16 is a verse of scripture that is often read at weddings, like it's about a husband and a wife, but it's not. It's about Ruth and her mother-in-law. It's about Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. It's about spiritual companionship. Listen to what it says in verse 16. But Ruth replied, do not urge me to leave you and turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. At a wedding, you probably heard it like this. Whither thou goest, I will go, right? Sound familiar? Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And they became spiritual companions, Ruth and Naomi. And if you read the rest of the book, and I think it's only four or five chapters, you will see how their spiritual companionship actually served to make both of them more resilient. And had they not had one another, the story would not have panned out anything like it did. Spiritual companionship. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing for a number of reasons. First, when you think about it, spiritual companionship is a friendship that is spiritually rooted. Look at verse 15 again. Look at what it says there. It says, your sister-in-law is going back to her people, and, and look at those next three words, and her gods go back with her. Okay, you catch that, right? 
that Orpah had decided she would go back to Moab. They had just left Moab. She's going to go back there to be with her people and with her gods. Naomi, she is leaving there. She's going the other direction, back to Judah. But Orpah is happy to go back here. And you can see there's almost a a sense of spiritual dissonance there. That one of them's going to be with Jehovah God who made heaven and earth, and the other one's going to be with Chamash. Do you know anything about that God of the Moabites? I'll just say this. He was a God that occasionally required human sacrifice. So you can see that there wasn't really a spiritual rootedness that could exist between Orpah and Naomi at that time. (laughs) Just they wouldn't have been spiritual companions. But Ruth, apparently Ruth was at this place in her life where she turned her back on that kind of paganism. Something about her heart had changed and she was ready to leave that behind. And spiritually, it seems that she is connecting with Naomi and with Naomi's people and with Naomi's God. And her goal, her objective is to stay with her and follow her. Her goal is to be where Naomi is and be with Naomi's people and worship Naomi's God. She likes that and that's her goal. And those who have spiritual companionship, they tend to share common goals together. They feel the same about ministry. They feel the same about their lives. They they feel the same about how they spend their time. They feel the same about God and his place in their life. And when you walk from Moab to Judah with someone like that, that makes you able to handle the journey better because you have spiritual companionship. It even makes you resilient. Likewise, this spiritual rootedness that they share gives them similar views on eternity. And I want you to, I just want to say how you view eternity is very important. We talked about Louise earlier. I said she checked herself out of the hospital and went home. One who did not have her viewpoint on, on eternity would have said, yes, check me in, make me better, don't let me die. But Louise says, I have a different viewpoint on eternity. Send me home. I'm ready. That viewpoint on eternity is expressed many places in Scripture. Abraham had it when the Scripture said that he was looking for a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And when you're looking for that, it changes everything about the way you behave here. So that when you face financial challenges, you can bounce back because you see eternity differently. And your financial problem is much smaller. And if you have spiritual companions in your life to remind you of that, you are even more resilient. And when you face discouragement, when you read the news, and who doesn't read the news and just feel like, where is this world going? If you have a view like Abraham had toward eternity, and if you have spiritual companions to remind you of those things, you can bounce back from your morning cup of coffee and the news that you accidentally read, right? If you have that view of eternity, it changes everything about you. And when you have spiritual companions to walk with you along the way, they can encourage you along those lines and make you more resilient. Because they even share your viewpoints on God. It is very difficult, very difficult to be resilient as a Christian when you find yourself in the company of someone who hates God. Some of you maybe are married to someone 
who although maybe they hate God, maybe they don't, they act like they really don't like him. Maybe they see him as a meanie, or they see him as unfair, or they see him as, as just not caring or irrelevant. And when you're trying to spiritually recover from some kind of a setback in your life, that person can really behave in an ungodly manner in your life. And so those of you that find yourself in that situation, you kind of know exactly what I'm saying. You're like, man, I I say, let's pray about this. And my wife says, a lot of good that'll do. And you're like, how am I supposed to be resilient in that case, Pastor Steve? And the answer is to keep walking the journey and look for spiritual companionship. By the way, let me warn you of this. Do not ever think you will find, if you are in a marriage with someone who is not spiritually on the same page as you, do not ever believe the demonic lie that you should find someone else who is on the same page as you. I've watched couples do that. I've watched people do that. And that second marriage is never what they anticipate it will be because it was born out of disobedience. So don't even go down that road. But do go down the road that says, I find myself in need of spiritual companionship. And if you're a woman, say, I'm going to need some other women to help me along this road. If you're a guy, I'm going to need some other guys to help me walk this road. Because, Because those who view God the way you do can help you be resilient in the midst of such things. They can say to you when you feel like this just isn't working, I'm ready to give up on my job. They can say, hey, God's in your corner, man. Don't give up on that. This isn't working. I just feel like I'm, I'm never going to be able to be the kind of mom I should be. I'm going to put these kids up for adoption. That's what I'm going to do. No, the, the person who views God like you does will say, buddy, you can do this. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in those kids. <laughs> or whatever it is, right? Yeah. And so when you have those spiritual companions who are spiritually rooted as you are and share your views of God, that can make you resilient. Spiritual companions are spiritually rooted. It's also a friendship that is, it's evolving, it's growing, it's changing. You know, before Ruth made this commitment to Naomi, any idea how long they had known each other? It was in the text we just read. It's in verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. They married Moabite women, that's the two sons, one named Orpah. And by the way, if you're looking for a name for a child, that might be a consideration. Be just my luck, there's an Orpah visiting today. Okay. The other, Ruth, after they had lived there, here it is, about 10 years, then Malan and Killian died. 10 years. During those 10 years, something was happening, you understand. Ruth was seeing for the first time people, probably the first time, people who didn't worship Kamash. They, they worshiped the God who made heaven and earth, the one who would redeem humankind through the death of his son. And, and when she saw that, something was changing in Ruth. She was growing, she was evolving, she was becoming a new person. It takes time for people to change. It takes time for spiritual companionship to develop. It's not something that happens overnight. And by the way, it's not something you can force. You can't force someone to be the spiritual companion that you need. You can't force someone to be the spiritual person you want them to be. And again, in marriage, sometimes that happens. That an individual will say, I wish my wife, I wish my husband would just get on the same page. And they try to force their spouse into something they are not, or at least they are not yet. And, and, And the problem is you can't make anyone, you, you human being, cannot make anyone love God the way you love God. 
And if you try to force your spouse into being the spiritual companion you want him to be, force is the operative word here, if you try to force them into that, there's a good chance you'll do more harm than good. Scott Sauls quotes another author who, who says this, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe or by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. That's beautiful, isn't it? Twisting the arm never brings anyone to Christ, and it can't create spiritual companionships. Spiritual companionship needs to be freely given, and it was freely given by Ruth to Naomi, and it grew. And freely given relationships like that create an atmosphere of resilience. Spiritual companionship is an atmosphere in which you share common values. We kind of touched on this. I'm going to talk about it just a wee little bit more before we move on, though. Spiritual companions are people who are committed to the same thing that you are. They value the same kinds of things that you do. And Naomi, I'm sorry, Ruth demonstrates this with Naomi in verse 16 when she says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. That's not a husband and wife reading that is a spiritual companionship reading. And coming from Ruth's lips, it means that she is as committed to God as she can be right alongside of Naomi. She's committed to those values and that outlook. She's committed to those people because she knows those people are to follow the same God that Naomi is to follow. She is committed to that God because she has seen the difference in Naomi. And she wants to those, those beautiful things that Naomi has. The basis of that commitment, it really rests in what she sees in Naomi. And by the way, Naomi had flaws. We didn't read on, but before the end of the first chapter, Naomi gets home and she says, they say, hey, is this Naomi? And Naomi says, don't call me that. Call me bitter, because God has given me the raw end of the deal. (laughs) Basically, that's what she says. So she's by no means perfect, but Ruth saw in her values (laughs) that made her kind of say, I think I found my people. I think I found my people. These are my people. I want to be. I want to be. And when you find your people, when you find that spiritual companionship, then when things come along and knock you down, you can stand back up. For Naomi, the whole book of Ruth is a story of resilience. And a lot of it is based on a spiritual companionship she shares with Ruth. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the care and maintenance of spiritual companionship. I mean, how do I get it? How do I take care of it? How do I maintain it? How do I make sure it's functioning well? And I I just want to kind of give you some pointers. The first one is this. Look for quality. (laughs) Look for quality. When I was a kid, someone bought me a set of sockets for Christmas. And the sockets were so cheap that they broke on my bicycle. Okay? Uh, Imagine if you try to take a head off of an engine with that socket set, right? They just crumbled. They They were made out of powdered metal, no quality, no name, socket set. Early in our married life, I said to my wife, I need a new socket set. I'd like you to get it for me for Christmas or my birthday. I don't remember what it was. My wife said, my wife said I, I love Christmas ideas. Yeah, which socket set do you want? And I showed her the one I wanted, and she said, oh, don't they make socket sets that cost less than that? Yes, they do. There's one out in the trunk of our car right now. <laughs> because it had no quality, it had no... It had no value because of how cheaply 
it was constructed. <laughs> Look for quality in your tools. Look for quality in your spiritual companionship. Don't look for someone and say, hey, you know what? That guy, he's probably not any further down the road than I am from moving from Moab to Judah, if we want to use that analogy. But, you know, he'll do. No, don't do that. Look for someone who is truly journeying because the scripture says that the righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way the wicked leads them astray. So you want to be around people of spiritual quality. Look for friends who are interested in becoming mature. Look for friends who are interested in pleasing God. Look for friends who are interested in making a difference in ministry in their world. People who are not just spiritual consumers that just want to get, get, get. Look for people that are, that are spiritual servants who want to give and who want to work in the kingdom and who want to change the world through the power of Christ within them. Look for them when you're looking for spiritual companionship. And second, when you begin to have a relationship like that, treat it with respect. Treat it with respect. When you have found spiritual companionship, be sure that you value it. One of my rules about my guns, I have guns. And one of my rules is this. If I shoot a gun, I clean that gun. And if someone says, you want to go shooting? I say, how long will we be? 90 minutes. Oh, an hour and a half. Oh, you know what? That's all the time I have. And they say, perfect, let's go. I say, no, because I'm not going to have time to clean the gun. And I'm not going to shoot the gun if I can't clean the gun. It's a rule that I am a Nazi about. I treat my guns with respect. Here's why. My father didn't have that rule. And so every gun in my house growing up had rust on the outside of the barrel from salty, sweaty hands, grabbing that gun and shooting whatever needed to be shot out in the backyard, probably, you know, on the farm growing up. Now, in my father's defense, his not taking care of his guns is quite understandable. He got guns at an age where you could go down to Montgomery Wards or Sears and Roebuck, lay down $14 and get a really nice gun. That is not the case in my world. In my world, and hear this sentence, it's, it's intentional the way I'm phrasing it. In my world, guns are dear. That doesn't mean they're sweet. <laughs> that means they're costly. They're expensive. Guns are dear, so I treat them with respect. Now listen to this sentence. Spiritual companionship is dear. You get that, right? And so you want to treat it with respect because it's often very difficult to find. And you want to show proper respect to your spiritual friends. You want to love the family of believers. You want to do the other things too, but you want to really respect your spiritual companions and the friendship you have with them. And that means you're going to have to invest time in them. Any relationship you have in your life, if it's going to be a good relationship, is going to require that you invest time in it. Your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your children, that's going to take time. And if you're one of those selfish guys that says, I'm just going up to the hunting camp every weekend or every time I'm free, and you don't spend time with that family, that relationship will suffer because you are not prioritizing it. It is the same with your spiritual companionships. If you do not make time for them, they will not be healthy. They will not be healthy. I was asking uh, one of my small groups, so we finished, we're about ready to finish this book. What book do you want to do next? Anybody have any ideas? And some people throw out some ideas. And then one guy said this, and I loved this sentence. I don't remember who it was that said it. And he didn't say it exactly like this. I tweaked it for the sermon. Listen to what he says. He says, you know what? I don't really care what book we read. I come here for the spiritual companionship. What he said was, I come here for the friendship. But what he loves is spiritual companionship. If you want spiritual companionship to work for you, 
You'll have to invest time and you'll have to be there. You'll have to give it your time. You'll have to sacrifice other things, good things sometimes, in order to have the better thing. You'll have to invest your time in your spiritual companionships in order that you can enjoy the resilience. And you'll have to connect with one another. As iron sharpens iron, so you and I sharpen one another, the book of Proverbs says. And spiritual companionships help you along the way. When you're struggling with something, they help you. When you need prayer support, they help you. Scott Brubaker is part of the Saturday morning small group that we have that meets at Dutch Pantry. And Scott sent a text to the group at that time and said, I just learned that my mom has cancer. Please have the guys pray for her. How can you do that? Because he's invested time in that group. And because he knows those are men that can support him in this time. And that makes him more resilient. They help you think right. They give you biblical counsel. They help you behave well. They give you a better marriage. They make you resilient. Spiritual companionship does that. There's one more thing I want to say about spiritual companionship, and that is that you need to use it routinely. You need to use it routinely. Now, I have a buddy. He was a, he was a deputy in Arizona uh, for uh, a couple years, years ago. And he says um, that um, he has this role in his life that if you happen to carry a firearm, you need to shoot it every week. And if you're not shooting it every week, you're probably more of a danger than you are help. Because you're not using it regularly, and so you don't know how to use it in a moment of panic, and you'd be better off to leave it at home. I understand what he's saying. It's kind of that way of spiritual friendships, that you can't be lazy about them. You need to connect with them regularly. In fact, Proverbs says, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And immediately when you hear that, you probably have heard sermons that say, that friend that sticks closer than a brother, that's Jesus. And perhaps that is indeed what the author of Proverbs was referring to, but he's probably also just saying something like this, close friends are consistent friends. Close friends are ones who stick with you. Consistent friends are the best of friends that you can have. That's what you need, is ones who are reliable, and you need to be that kind of person because that's what makes you resilient. So, how many people do you have in your life in whom you can confide? How would you answer that if you were put on a spot? I mean, just think about it. I mean, really, let's take 15 seconds. Who do you got? Don't tell me out loud. Who do you got? Who can you talk to when you're struggling with that secret sin? Who can you speak to when there's a problem in your family? Who can you talk to about the fears that wake you up in the middle of the night regarding the future? Who can you share those things with? And the number that comes to your mind when you think of that kind of serves you as a tool to evaluate your spiritual companionship. And you need to evaluate your spiritual companionship because it's important. Ruth had Naomi, Naomi had Ruth. Paul, who wrote the bulk of the New Testament as the Spirit of God inspired his words, he had Silas, he had Barnabas, he had Timothy, he had Titus, he had Luke. There's five right there. He's breaking the curve, isn't he? Jesus had a dozen, minus one, right? How many spiritual companions do you have? 